0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Your Brain Matters. I am your host, Debbie Anderson. This podcast is designed to help you, your care team, and family understand brain function. Neuropsychologists test cognitive abilities to understand how people are affected by brain injury, developmental, or neurological disorders. I will interview experts in many different areas to help understand these conditions. So welcome. I'm happy that you've joined me. Let's learn more about Brain Matters. Hello and welcome to episode one. As I said, I'm Debbie Anderson and I'm a neuropsychologist. Gosh, that sounds like a bit of a confession, doesn't it? But most people, when I tell them that, don't really know what I do. So today I'm going to talk about what a neuropsychologist is and why they could even matter to you. Now the word itself is a bit of a tongue twister and most people feel if they could spell it correctly they deserved a a gold star. And I remember early in my career having to spell it out, lots of uh, administrative situations like banks and so on when they asked what my occupation was. So there's two parts to the word neuropsychologist and both of them are important. I'll talk about the second part first. When we're psychologists, not medical doctors and that's an important distinction. So when you come to see us, although we talk about doing tests, we don't prescribe drugs, we can't take any x-rays or blood tests. But because we're psychologists, we're interested in your behaviour, personality and feelings. So we bring something extra to the table. But the neuro part is really important because what it tells you is that we're interested in understanding brain function. The way I explain this to people that ask me is that our medical colleagues are very good at looking at the structure of the brain. There's all sorts of fantastic technology with brain scans and so on that tell us a lot about structure. And we can know a little bit about function as a result of that, but we provide a a more detailed look at that. It also means that we can help our medical colleagues in understanding things like recovery from a structural injury, for example, from a stroke, but also assisting in understanding the impact of things that might not show up on a scan, so the effect of medication or mood. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about those later on. But first, the important thing is How does one even become a neuropsychologist? It's not the kind of thing you hear about at your year 12 career days. And we aren't really very common. I looked up the data at the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, APRA. They're the people who we are registered with. We have the Psychology Board of Australia. And they published data from March 2022. And there were only 822 endorsed neuropsychologists in the whole of Australia. So that means there aren't really very many of us getting around. And that's probably why lots of people haven't even heard of us. So although we're not recruiting people at Year 12 level, somewhere along the line at university studying psychology, people find out about neuropsychology. The minimum qualification in, at an educational level is a master's degree in the area of clinical neuropsychology, but many institutions are moving towards a PsyD or a PhD qualification as well. So your neuropsychologist has already been at university for about six years at the minimum, and once they leave, they then undergo a what we call a registrar program which means for the first one to two years, depending on their qualifications, they work alongside an experienced neuropsychologist. It, we're not treating them like a student, so we don't sit in the room with them or co-sign their reports, but we do keep an eye on them and provide mentoring. And after that period of time, they become fully endorsed neuropsychologists. Some people are a bit upset if they're sent to see a neuropsychologist, and they get the registrar because the person has to sign on the report that they're a registrar. And on the one hand, I can understand that. You might think, well, this is someone new and inexperienced, but there are actually some advantages. The first thing is that they're usually really keen. They're really up to date with the literature because they've graduated recently. They've read all the important information and been to lots of lectures and the other advantage is that they've got a, an experienced neuropsychologist checking in on them. So you're sort of getting two for one. So it's not always a bad thing. You probably heard me mention before the word endorsement. What does that mean? So in Australia, we have rules that are um, legally enforceable about who's allowed to call themselves what. So if somebody wants to use the name neuropsychologist, they have to have endorsement with APRA in the area. What that means is that they have qualifications and experience to be a neuropsychologist. And more importantly, in order to maintain the endorsement, we are required to undergo regular professional development, including peer supervision. So just like many other professions, we can't just rest on our laurels once we've finished university. We have to make sure that we're up to date. And sometimes people say, well, there aren't all that many neuropsychologists around. Should I see someone who's not an endorsed neuropsychologist? And of course that's up to you. But unfortunately, you're not guaranteed that that person will have specialist training and supervision, nor are they obliged to keep up to date. They may be, but we don't know. And of course, then you might say, well, why is the training and the keeping up to date important? Well, neuropsychologists need to know about lots of areas of cognitive function. We need to understand about lots of different conditions that can impact on people's brains. And we don't want to get stuck thinking about only one possible diagnosis. Our job is to think about lots of possibilities and to exclude or include them all. And that's what is important about our training. The other thing, of course, is that we must keep up to date with the advances in research, science and medicine that relate to the areas in which we practice. So for example, there might be a new drug on the market to treat conditions such as epilepsy or depression. And we're not in the business obviously of prescribing it, but we need to understand if we see someone who's been prescribed that, has it been shown to impact on cognitive function? Is that something we have to think about Did that show up in the literature so far? So it's important that we keep an eye on the research for that reason. So the question you're probably asking is, well, that's all very well. Those qualifications are a bit vague to me. What is it that you actually do? Well, coming to see a neuropsychologist is, is sort of a big deal in the sense that we ask you to keep a very big chunk of time free for the assessment. At my office, we asked people to keep most of the day free. Often an assessment is four or five hours, but sometimes, depending on the nature of the problem, people might be there all day. So this is not the kind of appointment that you can just expect to be in and out in half an hour or an hour. This is something that quite a bit of time is dedicated to. I should say, however, that uh, I primarily deal with adults and I do know that in the uh, groups of neuropsychologists that assess children, they often have shorter assessment times so they might have multiple sessions. Anyway, what do we actually do? For The first thing is that we don't forget that we're psychologists. We want to interview both the person who has come to us with some kind of a question, as well as someone else who knows them. So we like to interview, ideally, a family member. Depending on the age of the person, that might be a spouse or a parent or even a child. And it's very important because the nature of some brain conditions is that it stops the person from being able to fully understand or see the changes that have occurred. So getting this from an alternative perspective is really important. It can also help us to understand the practicalities. How is this person affected in everyday life? Are they forgetful? Do they need to be reminded to take their medication, for example? Do they go into a room and find themselves unable to remember why they went there? There's lots of things that are important. Additionally, they might talk about how the person seems to be very down and depressed or that their personality has changed, that they say things that are quite out of character for them. We also interview the person who's been referred to us to understand what they've noticed, whether they've seen a change or there are difficulties that they're concerned about. So, for example, they may be concerned that they have become forgetful or they might be aware that they're not keeping up with their schoolwork, that type of thing. Then we go ahead with our assessment and that's where most of the time is spent. So what we do is a whole lot of tests of memory, concentration, thinking, problem solving, speed of responding, academic skills like reading, spelling, maths, language skills, and visuospatial functions, so putting puzzles together, drawing complicated pictures, that type of thing. And if necessary, we would also assess mood and personality because they might be an important part of the presentation. So one of the questions that people most ask is, is there an IQ test? Well, yes, we do do a, an IQ test, but we do much more than that. We don't get it, do it just to get an IQ number. We do it to understand the many aspects of thinking that go into that general intelligence concept. It's really important to remember that often the types of difficulties we see are much more widespread than just impacting IQ. So they're things like memory, higher level thinking, problem solving. And so of course we have to evaluate all of those things. Sometimes people feel it's a little bit like going back to school and yes, at times we might ask you general knowledge questions, that type of thing. For the most part, the assessment is face-to-face. Some people do some evaluations via telehealth, but for the most part we like to work face-to-face so that we can manipulate the the puzzles, for example, that type of thing. Some people are afraid that they're going to be writing for all of the hours they're with me and that's not the case we tend to do most of the writing and we encourage people to do their best. One of the things they often feel silly about is that they don't know all the answers and often I tell people repeatedly it's designed so that you're not expected to know everything we have to push you to your limit to find where that limit is but I understand that it can be embarrassing to be asked questions that you don't know the answers to. So we we encourage people to maintain a positive attitude. Some of the tests are timed, so that means we work against the clock. So we have to fill something in like a code as quickly as we can or put a puzzle together as quickly as we can. And some of them are more practical, like remembering words or pictures. Overall, as I said earlier, it can take several hours. Now, of course, we don't expect people to work without a break. Most neuropsychologists schedule in a break at an appropriate time, and I certainly encourage people to go outside to get some fresh air and stretch their legs in that break. But the duration of the assessment depends on a lot of things, such as the age of the person and the type of problem. When we get to the end of the day, that might finish things up for you but not for us we take the tests and do a lot more work with them so what the neuropsychologist does that is very important is that we score the pet tests and we compare them those results to other people of the same age so if our question is this person feels like they're a little bit more forgetful than they used to be we it is very important that we compare how they go on their tests to other people their age because perhaps people of the same age are also a little bit forgetful so that's part of the important contribution that neuropsychology makes so doing that has to be quite precise and it's where we find out that although when the person was doing their tests, they might have been embarrassed about not remembering a long list of words, but it may also turn out that many other people of the same age can't either, and we only can do that. The only way that we can do that is by comparing their results to the normative data. So what's this normative data? Well, what that is, is information about how thousands of other people performed on that very test. So, obviously, I'm not out there collecting thousands of data points. That's something that our researchers do, either when they're developing a test or uh, when they're doing uh, research work. So, it, But it is important, though, because that le- adds to the scientific value and the objectivity of what we do. We don't just say, I think you've got a bad memory because I saw it. We say... Compared to other people of your age, your memory is impaired or not impaired or average. We then analyse the information that we have and correlate the pattern of performance with what we know from the research literature about the condition. So is the person presenting with the type of of memory problems that we expect following this type of head injury? Or do we think there is something else going on? So the other important thing is that we then write all of that into a report. That reports something that is important because over time, this information is crucial in understanding a condition, whether it's improved over time, as as can happen after a head injury, things get better. Or it might deteriorate over time, in the case of uh, a dementing, uh, an early dementia, for example. So we write the report. Uh, ideally, we send a copy to the person who sent them to us, so their referring doctor or specialist. Some neuropsychologists will see you for feedback if you're the person that we did the report about. So. Your neuropsychologist will explain what's going on, how you went on the tests, whether that tells us something important about your cognitive function, whether it's the sort of thing we expect given what's happened. So if you've had a stroke or, or a um, head injury or for a child, it looks like they've got a learning disorder, for example. And then the neuropsychologist may engage in some type of intervention. So they might help develop some strategies to cope with the difficulties that you've found, but they also might refer you on to somebody else for further treatment. So now that I've convinced you that neuropsychologists are doing something that might be interesting or helpful, of course the question on your mind is, where would I find such a rare person? Well, there are lots of places that... Uh, you can find neuropsychologists, so here's a few. The first group, of course, are our researchers and academics. So they work at universities, they teach the next generation of neuropsychologists, but they also conduct research. So they help us understand how our tests can conv- un- um, understand the difficulties that people experience in certain conditions they might help develop new tests that type of thing so if you're ever invited to be a part of research I'd strongly encourage you to to agree because it's a non-invasive way of us understanding lots of important information the other thing about universities is that they often run clinics so when people are undergoing their training to become a neuropsychologist, they need to practice their skills. They need to practice administering the tests because it's not easy and they need to learn. So if you cannot find neuropsychologists in other places, don't forget to look as to whether your university, local university has a training program and can offer you an assessment as part of that. The next area that you would predominantly find neuropsychologists is in the public hospital system. So in Australia, we have a wonderful public hospital system that's free. And as part of that, in some places, there are neuropsychologists. Usually, it's in the larger hospitals that have the bigger specialised units, and so the neuropsychologist might be part of a head injury rehabilitation team or a neurology team, that sort of thing. So, if you're being treated at a public hospital, it may well be that your specialist is able to refer you to a neuropsychologist if that's necessary. In addition, some of the public hospitals also have uh, specialised units. So, for example, they might have memory clinics. And the memory clinics are specifically for people who are concerned about early changes associated with ageing. So, people who are worried about declining memory associated with their age. And they provide a lot of very specialised assessment and research. The next area that neuropsychologists work in is private practice. Now, somebody can be referred to a private practice by uh, a variety of sources. So the first would be their general practitioner. The next would be a medical specialist. So the types of medical specialists would be neurologists, neurosurgeons, psychiatrists, pediatricians, geriatricians, and so on. So, all of them would have specific questions associated with their area. So, they would be wanting to ask things like, this person has multiple multiple sclerosis, do they have any cognitive deficits that will prevent them from continuing working, or this person's had a traumatic brain injury, Uh, how can we help them improve their memory, all those types of things. The other way that somebody may get referred to a neuropsychologist would be through a third party uh, situation. So an insurer, so a, an insurer following a motor vehicle accident, for example, or work cover following a workplace accident, or under the NDIS system. The good news about those types of referrals is that those institutions ordinarily pay for the assessment and the idea is that the neuropsychological information uh, assists in the treatment of the person. So it's very valuable to, for the neuropsychologist to assist answering questions such as whether this person is ready to go back to work. Do they need uh, special considerations or conditions if they do go back to work? What are the alternatives? And so on. Again, I emphasise this is not a physical assessment in the way an occupational therapist might assess their suitability for work. The neuropsychologist is primarily thinking about cognitive and psychological factors in their return to work. In addition, there is another area that uh, can lead to referral for a neuropsych assessment, and that's the legal area. In those cases, they are very specialised reports that are prepared for legal settings. Primarily, they are for personal injuries cases, but they also can be used in criminal cases. In some states, when somebody has a motor vehicle accident, they can engage in legal action uh, and seek compensation for the injuries they've sustained. So the sort of questions that might come up are, how have they been affected by their injury? How does that affect their earning capacity? Do they need extra care? That type of thing. For the criminal cases, there's often a question that is something more like Did their brain injury affect their behaviour and therefore their offending? Are they able to benefit from rehabilitation? Do they fully understand what's going on in the legal situation and can they give their instructions to their solicitor, that type of thing. So as you can see, there's uh, a lot of different places that you might find a neuropsychologist. The questions are essentially very similar across all of those contexts. So the questions are, has this person demonstrably changed due to an injury, accident, neurological disorder? Or does this person have a problem that's out of the ordinary compared to other people their age? And the neuropsychologist can provide objective evidence. So it's not a feeling. It's based on how they perform on the tests compared to other people about whether or not there is a cognitive deficit. And that, of course, then drives intervention. Because we rely on research that tells us what type of interventions can help with different kinds of situations. So sometimes a neuropsychologist might do an intervention. They also may refer people on to an appropriate uh, provider. So I hope you've enjoyed this overview of what is neuropsychology and where you can find neuropsychologists. In future, we're going to talk about a little more detail about some of the aspects of the assessment and reporting, as well as the kinds of conditions that people might experience. So thank you for joining me, and I look forward to your company next time. Thank you for joining me on the Your Brain Matters podcast. I hope you heard something interesting and relevant today. Don't forget to subscribe in your podcast provider to keep updated with the latest episodes. I look forward to next time. Bye.